Well, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you um, just for your loving kindness toward us, Lord, that's new every day. Thank you for this, even this topic that we're looking at today. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and, uh, Father, that you would help us to be faithful. We ask that you would even now begin to prepare our hearts to worship you, uh, Lord, not only with our lips, but with our hearts fully engaged. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I wanted to start by playing somewhat of a word association game with you. I'm going to say a word, and you just tell me what comes to mind whenever I say this word. There's no wrong answers. Y'all ready? And I'm only going to do one word. Uh, Martyr. What comes to your mind when I say the word martyr? Stephen, good. Keep going. Anything else? Jamelia. Jamelia. What else? That's it? Death? Death? <laughs> yeah, good. What? Dying for Christ. Good. Any? A witness, yeah. Faithful. Faithful. Latimer and Ridley. Later. Good. Well, I'm sure with the word martyr, lots of things come to mind. One thing that's interesting to me, and I suspected this would be the case, um, I guess, Jason, you came the closest, uh, is that no one mentioned uh, anything about martyrdom and today. I mean, I know some of the answers were general. We typically, as Americans, don't think about martyrdom because it's not, we think about it in context of another country, maybe, uh, but we don't think about it in, in terms of our context. And there's a good reason for that. Um, our history has uh, not been filled with persecution, uh, but, but certainly it's happening today. When we look at the New Testament, uh, the word martyr simply means witness. Um, in fact, you'll recall last week we looked at Acts 1.8, where Jesus uh, is giving his instructions to, to the apostles, and he, says, uh, and he says that you will be my witnesses. Literally, the word there in the Greek is martyrs. Um, so th- throughout much of the New Testament, the word martyr literally meant being a witness. And, and certainly, you have people who would be a witness unto death. And so over time, Especially as the church encounters persecution, the word martyr came to be more and more associated with dying for your faith. Um, I, was, I came across one thing uh, this week. It suggested that there's more martyrs today than at any other point in history. And I don't, uh, I think that's probably right. Um, when you look at, I looked up the World Watch List in 2021. And it reported, it lists countries and how dangerous they are for Christians to live in. And what do you think the top ten countries are for being dangerous to live in? Afghanistan? China? I heard China, Iran. Where? North Korea? Absolutely. Actually, North Korea is at the top of the list, which surprised me a little bit. I knew it wasn't. Uh, probably safe for Christians there. Uh, Yeah, you had top of the list, North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, uh, Libya, Pakistan, 
Eritrea, I think I'm saying that right, I'm not sure, uh, which is uh, on the eastern side of Africa. I think it's just north of Somalia. Um, Yemen, Iran, Nigeria, and India, top 10. Surprised me that China wasn't in that, but China makes the top 20. Um, so, uh, while there certainly is probably more martyrs today as they recommend or suggest, um, one thing to keep in mind is there's the number of Christians today, the, pop, the number of people who are Christians today is far greater than it ever has been in history. Um, well, what we're going to look at today is the persecution of the early church, um, and we're going to be looking primarily at the first two centuries. Uh, you'll remember, if you think back through the New Testament, that persecution, when, it, um, when the church first encountered persecution, it, it really wasn't a surprise to them. Um, in fact, when you look at much of the New Testament, it, it's related in some way, shape, or form to persecution uh, when you look at the books. And you'll also remember that Jesus even warned his disciples in John 15, 20. He said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Um, he, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 10, and 12, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You also remember what Paul, uh, Paul's encouragement to Timothy in 2 Timothy, Second uh, Timothy three twelve. Paul writes, "Indeed, all desire, all who desire to live godly, to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted." So as we think about the early church and persecution, it wasn't a surprise to them when they encountered it. They had seen and heard, and so as the church uh, is being persecuted it was seemed normal to them because that's what they had been told from the beginning. The first persecution of the church, you'll look at your notes. I have it broken down into two sections. We're going to spend the most of our, most of our time on the Roman persecution, um, but I didn't want to leave out the Jewish persecution, which I kind of, um, not alluded to, but, um, last week I mentioned the fact that the church changed ethnically, uh, it grew from being a predominantly uh, Jewish to predominantly Gentile. Um, Gonzalez writes this, The early Christians did not believe that they were following a new religion. They were Jews, and their main difference with the rest of Judaism was that they were convinced the, that the Messiah had come, whereas other Jews continued awaiting his advent. So, when you think about it from a Jewish perspective, uh, the Jews really didn't see Christianity as a separate religion. What they saw was, like most people saw it, it was a sect of, of the Jewish religion, although a heretical sect. And so, the Jewish response to the early church was to try to stamp it out. They saw it as a heresy within their own group that was pulling people into a false religion. Um, you'll recall uh, sort of the attitude that Paul had. Um, you remember in Philippians 3, actually turn to Philippians 3. Paul kind of goes through in Philippians 3 and lists all the things 
that the Jews saw as advantageous. And Paul points out his whole point of this, if anyone can put confidence in what man can do, or in the flesh, as Paul puts it, Paul could have done that better than anybody else. And so he goes through and he's listing all of the things that were uh, esteemed in the Jewish community. He writes in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And as Paul goes through this list, again, he's mentioning all the things that Jews would have seen as valuable. Uh, Paul gets to, and he would list that thing, and then he would point out how he had achieved a higher level than anyone else. And when he gets to being zealous... Hebrews wanted to be zealous. When he gets to being zealous, what is his evidence that he was zealous? He was a zealous Jew. What is his evidence? Right, he persecuted the church. And so that was key uh, and in Paul's understanding of what it meant to be a good Jew. Seeing this false teaching, this heresy that was creeping up uh, in the synagogue to stamp it out. Um, there's so much in uh, Philippians 3, but really that's, uh, that's what pertains to our lesson this morning. Um, you'll remember Jesus was persecuted by the Jews. Sorry. My... Uh, you'll also remember, again, the Apollo of the Apostles were persecuted by the Jews. We have an example of that in Acts 5. Um, it says in verse 17, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Also, Jerry, uh, Jerry, James was put to death by Herod uh, in Acts 12. You'll recall Stephen, someone mentioned Stephen when I asked you about martyrdom, uh, Stephen was brought before the Jewish council on the charge of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. This is all in Acts 7. And, and in response, he gives a, a speech. And he ends his speech this way, in verses 51 through 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and, and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as, did your as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So again, you're seeing the, the church is being persecuted uh, first by the Jews, and eventually Paul would be persecuted. Um, and that's, we have an account, one account of that in Acts 18, uh, where the Jews persecute Paul says the Jews made an, a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persecuting, uh, uh, I'm sorry, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. 
So again, early in the church, uh, typically they were facing persecution, but it was mostly uh, Jewish persecution. But that tide tends to change as we move toward the end of the first century and into the second century. Uh, again, you're going to see in different areas and different ways uh, Christianity is viewed not only by Jews and Christians, but also by the Romans as a uh, religious sect of Judaism. But as that's, one of the things that caused that to change was, again, I pointed this out last week, the church is growing ethnically. It's the, the makeup of the church is changing from Jewish to Gentile. And you think about uh, Judaism as an umbrella. The church really uh, wanted, benefited from being under the umbrella of Judaism in the beginning because Jews were exempt from worshiping the emperor. Christians and Jews both refused to worship the emperor. And at first, Rome really didn't pay much attention to the, the Christians because they were seen as, again, a, a subset of Judaism. Um, as, the, as Gentiles begin to increase in the church, however, it's kind of two things are happening. The makeup of the church is changing, but then also you have these rebellions where Jews are rebelling against the Roman authority. More pressure as conflict between uh, Jews and Rome uh, increased, uh, the Gentile Christians no longer saw the benefit of being under the umbrella of Judaism, and so uh, the, the church begins to be seen as a separate and move toward being a separate or separate from Judaism. Um, Gonzalez writes this, the new consciousness of Christianity as a separate religion was at the root of two and a half centuries of persecution by the Roman Empire from the time of Nero to the conversion of Constantine. Um, really this week we're going to look at the first and second century and then I'm going to do the third century a little bit later. So the first century... Uh, I've broken it up into two, uh, really, because mainly uh, you see the first century, second century. And by the way, let me give you some uh, a little background to the outline. I, I kind of have three points for each ruler, Roman ruler. Um, the occasion of persecution, basically what, ha what happened to bring the persecution about, the nature of persecution, and then the outcomes or what happened, what is the result of the persecution under that ruler um, I do have that for all of the rulers. I don't always have really good points under all of the rulers because the information is not that well known, but I, I left it anyway just to be consistent. But in the first century, one of the distinctions between the first and second century regarding persecution was that uh, the, the records that we have, we don't really have clear records about the first century. So a lot of what we know about first century persecution was pieced together, more so than what you see in the second century. The second century, you're starting to have a lot more Christians who are writing. You have a lot more even pagan historians who are writing. Um, you have, from a later era, writing back about the time of the second century. You have Eusebius, who's t who writes about the martyrs. So there's a lot more information about the second century. The first, again, the sources are a little bit scarce. Uh, but what we do know some things, for sure. I'm sure you've heard a lot about Nero, which is the first ruler that we're going to look at. The dates that I have next to the rulers are... The dates that they ruled, that's not their life. Um, so Nero ruled from 54 to 68, and sometimes those dates aren't 
exact. Sometimes uh, you'll have a ruler who has someone uh, ruling with him, like a son. We're going to see that with Marcus Aurelius. Toward the end of Marcus Aurelius's uh, reign, he had uh, Commodus, his son, ruling with him. I don't really make that distinction um, for the most part. Um, it's just Marcus Aurelius's rule. So Nero, 54 to 68, uh, <clears throat> probably if out of all of the rulers, my guess is that you're probably most familiar with the story of Nero. Um, what is Nero famous for? What sparked the persecution? Everybody, the burning of Rome, yeah. Um, so Nero, when he first began to rule, uh, he began pretty much as a reasonable ruler, um, but as time grew, within 10 years, uh, he had really uh, became a little bit infatuated with his own power and greatness. Uh, he surrounded himself with a court, and uh, these were uh, men who really wanted to please Nero, uh, which is not always a good thing to do if you're in leadership. Um, and so what you had is a man who became more and more infatuated, rumors the, the Roman populace really began to despise Nero, and so you had all of these rumors about Nero. Um, the poets hated him because he claimed to be a poet. Uh, he thought he was this great poet, so they hated him uh, because they recognized that he wasn't. Um, generally speaking, people did not have a favorable view of Nero by the time he ended his reign. In fact, at the end of his reign, or even at the time of the fire, most people believed, or there were rumors that he was mad. So, you're all familiar, June 18th, 64 AD, great fire broke out in Rome. It was a, by all accounts, a devastating fire. Um, Rome at that point uh, was broken up into 14 sections. Ten of those 14 sections were destroyed by the fire. The fire lasted seven days, I think six days and seven nights, if I remember correctly. But then even after that, uh, flames would reemerge in different areas and continue to burn. And so for a period of about 10 days, you had uh, the Rome burning. Um, because of all the rumors, it was suggested that Nero set the fires. Really, by the accounts, at least from, um, again, I'm using Gonzalez as a story of Christianity. From his perspective, uh, uh, I know there's a lot of different stories on what, what Nero was doing. <laughs> but from Gonzalez's perspective, uh, Nero probably wasn't even in Rome when it happened. Um, by his account, Nero, as soon as he hears about the fire, rushes to Rome and begins the fight to put the fire out and even opens up the gardens of the palace for the people who were left homeless because of the fire. So it seems like uh, Nero was really trying to help. Um, despite all of that, however, uh, the rumors kept going, and Nero came uh, under more and more uh, pressure because of the rumors. People were crying out for justice, and since two of the sections that did not burn were heavily populated by Christians uh, and Jews, uh, Nero decided to blame the Christians for setting the fire. So the Christians became a scapegoat for Nero. Um, one pagan historian or Roman historian, Tacitus, uh, describes what happened. 
Uh, and even Tacitus recognizes that the Christians were being blamed unfairly. Um, he writes this, In spite of every human effort of the emperor's largesse and of the sacrifices made to the gods, nothing sufficed to allay suspicion nor to destroy the opinion that the fire had been ordered. Therefore, in order to destroy this rumor, Nero blamed the Christians who, were, who are hated for their abominations and punished them with refined cruelty. Again, this is a Roman uh, historian. This is from his perspective. It's not a Christian perspective. Um, so Rome unleashes uh, persecution uh, by all accounts, probably one of the most cruel um, in, in early church history. Um, it is, again, under the nature of persecution, it's exceedingly cruel. Uh, again, Tacitus is helpful here. Uh, same historian, he writes this. He said, before killing the Christians, Nero used them to amuse the people. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they might illuminate. Nero opened his own gardens for these shows, and in the circus he himself became a spectacle. For he mingled with the people dressed as a charioteer, or he rode around in his chariot. All of this aroused the mercy of the people, even against these culprits who deserved an exemplary punishment, for it was clear that they were not being destroyed for the common good, but rather to satisfy the cruelty of one person. Again, from a Roman historian's perspective, um, even he recognized that Nero's persecution was not a just persecution. Um, Again, the, uh, moving on with the nature of the persecution, what we know about Nero's persecution, it was pretty much limited to the city of Rome. It wasn't an empire-wide persecution, uh, but it was extremely cruel. The, what are the outcomes? Really, there's two important things. In the outcomes, I'll talk about notable people who were martyred um, during the reign of this emperor. Um, we know that Peter was martyred under Nero, and more than likely, uh, there's good evidence to suggest that Paul was martyred under Nero as well. After Nero, again, in the dates, you're going to see some um, that I skip uh, some time periods. Uh, whenever I do that, typically what that means is during that time period, Christians are for the most part ignored by the Roman rulers. Um, and, and really, like, I guess I should say this, um, because as I talk about all of this, you have to keep in mind, I mean, we saw this in the quotes from Tacitus, that, uh, that Christians were hated for their abominations. I'm, I'm really focused in on more the Roman rulers. Uh, what you have to remember, though, is in public life, um, just in relation how Christians interacted, they weren't typically liked. Uh, they were not popular because of their beliefs, and we'll look at some of that um, next week. So, um, so uh, yeah, I guess back to my point. When I, I'm looking at the rulers, but you need to understand that throughout this, Christians are being persecuted uh, just because of their religion seemed very strange to the Romans and, and even, dis, even despicable in a lot of ways, which we talked about last week. Remember, um, we mentioned the fact that one of the criticisms of Christianity was that it only attracted the weak and the poor. Um, and so uh, Christianity was despised by most people. 
The second ruler, uh, the only one other one that I, I mentioned in the first century is Domitian. He ruled from 81 to 96. Um, and again, he started off, um, we, again, we don't know a whole lot about Domitian uh, as far as the persecution goes. We, we do know that at first he didn't pay Christians uh, a whole lot of attention. Um, and what we don't know is what caused him to change. Um, but at some point, it, he did change. Uh, and, and he began to persecute Christians, and, uh, and it was cruel as well. What we do know about him, the occasion of the persecution, is that Domitian loved and respected Roman traditions and the gods. This is going to kind of be a theme as we move through. The Roman rulers, uh, the ones who really love the Roman traditions and want to restore Rome to its greatness, will end up persecuting Christians because the Christians then become an obstacle to that. So uh, Domitian loved and respected Roman traditions. Uh, the Christians rejected the Roman gods and many of their traditions, and therefore they stood in his way. Uh, the nature of the persecution, um, it was mostly in Rome, although we do know it was in Asia Minor as well, and we know that it was cruel. And this is just based on some Christian letters that were written and dispersed. Um, Christians, uh, second under nature of persecution, Christians were accused of atheism, which would be a common accusation. It might sound strange to us that Christians would be accused of atheism. Why do you think that would be? Yeah, I heard. I'm coming over here. David? Yeah, it was that the same thing? Uh, yeah, they didn't worship the Roman gods. There was another reason uh, that probably contributed to it, um, and that is that the Christian God, uh, the, the God that Christians worship, is invisible. And so um, the, whatever the reason, probably mostly because they rejected the Roman gods, but also because they worshiped an invisible God, Christians were accused of atheism. What are the outcomes? Really, uh, the main thing... That probably the only reason uh, Domitian's mentioned here is because of this. Um, John is exiled to Patmos under his reign. And this is why we know that his persecution was in Asia Minor. Um, and you'll, you'll know that John eventually writes the book of Revelation um, while he was exiled. Um, Domitian, over time, became seen more and more as a tyrant, just like Nero. Uh, he was eventually murdered in his own palace. That is the first century, the two key figures, Nero and Domitian, as far as Roman uh, persecution. The second century, again in the second century, we, we have a lot more um, <clears throat> evidence as to what's going on. We have evidence to, as to what are the issues involved with Domitian. We don't really know what sparked the persecution we're starting to get a lot clearer picture of what's happening because more and more people are writing. We're also seeing, because Christians are writing more, more of the attitudes that Christians had toward martyrdom and toward persecution. And again, we'll look at that more next week. Uh, first and one of the most important people in the second century was Trajan. Trajan ruled from 98 to 117. 
really the main thing, and I'm going to give you a lot of background. I'm going to talk about Pliny, one of the governors under Trajan. Uh, so Pliny was a governor of Bithynia. Um, and why, I'm, why am I talking about Pliny and not Trajan? Well, it's because of something Pliny was doing that he needed advice for, and he asked uh, Trajan for advice, and Trajan responds and gives him advice on how to handle Christians. And, and that Trajan's response, some people call it an edict. I don't, yeah, it could be an edict, but really it's just correspondence between Trajan um, and, and um, uh, what's his name, Pliny. Uh, so Pliny was a governor in Bithynia, and he, Bithynia at this point was predominantly Christian. Pliny even noticed that the temples to the Roman gods were pretty much empty, and this greatly concerned Pliny. Pliny, again, was one of the Roman leaders who greatly valued Roman tradition and Roman religions, and so he was really perplexed about this. He realized that it was because of Christianity that, uh, the, that paganism basically was in decline in his region, and so he started persecuting the Christians. Um, initially, Pliny had three requirements. A Christian was brought before him or before a judge, and he would, he would basically offer, if they would, either pray to the gods, uh, burn incense to the emperor, or curse Christ, he would release them. Um, those are three things that Pliny had heard Christians would not do. We, what we know is that some Christians did do one of those things, and he let them go. Others did not, and he ex executed them. And the charge that really he had against the Christians was obstinacy. They were basically, in his mind, here are these Christians. They're refusing to do what is their public duty from a Roman perspective. You have these Christians, and for uh, the, for Rome to be successful, its citizens had to do some basic, thing, basic things which Christians would not do. And so another pretty common charge against Christians during this time was, was pretty much stubbornness. They're refusing to, to do basic things. And, and a lot of times it was even, you don't even have to mean it, just do it. Uh, and Christians still wouldn't do it. So plenty... In this dilemma, Pliny was trying to figure out what is the best way. He was really trying to figure out uh, what's the just thing to do here as a Roman governor. And so he writes to Trajan, uh, and he asks him how to handle the Christians. Trajan's response, uh, again, is, is crucial to the whole second. For over 100 years, Trajan's response kind of drives Roman, uh, the Rome's, Roman's position toward Christians. Trajan said three things. The state should not waste time seeking out Christians. Secondly, but if they are accused and convicted, they should be punished. And third, anonymous accusations should be disregarded. So the three things Trajan wrote to Pliny and told him you should do. Um, the nature of persecution during this time, it was empire-wide. It wasn't just Pliny. But once Trajan kind of set out these three principles, um, it began to spread, uh, although it was not always consistent. Uh, but you're, you're seeing something different now than what you saw with Nero and Domitian. The persecution was more measured. It wasn't as cruel. Um, what are the outcomes? 
Well, uh, Trajan's response, again, I pointed this out, would guide how Rome dealt with Christians for over a century. So these, these three things, uh, you shouldn't waste time on them, but if they're accused, you should try them, and if they're found guilty, uh, punish them. And, and one important thing was the anonymous accusations were no longer accepted. Um, Tertullian would really attack Trajan's uh, three points or his edict. Uh, and this was almost 100 years later. Tertullian rebelled against it, and he wrote this. He said, What a necessarily confused sentence. It refuses to seek them out as if they were innocent and orders that they be punished as if they were guilty. It pardons, and yet it, it is cruel. It ignores, and yet punishes. Why do you circumvent your own censure? If you condemn, why do you not inquire? And if you do not inquire, why do you not also absolve? So Tertullian, 100 years later, is really attacking the logic behind Trajan's uh, edict. Um, it may have lacked logic, uh, from Tertullian's perspective, but politically it seemed to make sense, uh, especially for Pliny and the rest of the Roman rulers who would continue that same approach. Um, another outcome. Ignatius of Antioch was martyred under Trajan. Um, Ignatius uh, was born around 30 A.D., the date given is anywhere from 30 to 35, um, which you'll recognize is really early. Um, Ignatius would have been familiar with a lot of the apostles. Um, he ended up becoming the second bishop of Antioch. Um, Antioch, at this point, was the largest church, the most influential church, and so uh, Ignatius had uh, was a very well-respected res leader and uh, many people looked up to him. He was arrested uh, for being a Christian in Antioch around 107 and sent to Rome for trial. That was pretty common. If you were arrested in Asia Minor, a lot of times they would be sent to Rome to be, be tried. Um, as Ignatius is traveling to Rome to be tried, he's being escorted by uh, Roman soldiers. But as he's moving through Asia Minor... Um, he's frequently visited by other Christians. And they would come and they would talk to Ignatius. And the, Rome, the soldiers did nothing about it. Again, evidence of Trajan's edict. Um, we're not going to seek you out. So Christians could come freely and, and visit with Ignatius and talk to him. Uh, but, but as he's moving through, um, again, they would come, but the, but the Roman soldiers did nothing about it. Um, on his way... Ignatius writes seven letters, and these letters are extremely important to, for our understanding, not only of Christians and persecution, but of church polity during the second century. Um, so he's writing these, these seven letters, which would be very key to our understanding of the second century church. Uh, but the one that's important for our understanding this morning is the letter he wrote to Rome. So, again, Ignatius is on his way to Rome. He finds out that the Christians in Rome, some of them probably higher up in society, started plotting a plan to free Ignatius. 
And Ignatius found out about it and wrote them a letter to stop them. Uh, he did not want them to try to prevent him from facing trial and imminent death, which he felt like was, he believed was the will of God. He writes this to him uh, in part in this letter. He writes, I fear your kindness, which may harm me. You may be able to achieve what you plan, but if you pay no heed to my request, it will be very difficult for me to attain unto God. If you remain silent about me, I shall become a word of God. But if you allow yourselves to be swayed by the love in which you hold my flesh, I shall again be no more than a human voice. So you see Ignatius, and and this is kind of characteristic of the church during this time. They saw martyrdom as a a key to the witness of the church and a key to the growth. You'll remember Tertullian's famous for saying, the blood of the martyrs. Can anybody finish that? Is the seed of the church, yeah. Uh, So the early church, um, you're, you're seeing from these, in particular this letter, uh, you see the, the attitude that Christians had toward persecution and death. And <clears throat> I need to pick it up. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, but I think that's worth uh, thinking about. Um, and, and it's hard for us to think about that as Americans, right? Because we don't face persecution. Um, but many of our brothers and sisters today are facing persecution. Many of our brothers and sisters throughout church history faced persecution, and they did it faithfully. Um, and and I, I pray that that would be an encouragement uh, to my own soul and to you as well um, to be faithful, even if it just means ridicule, uh, which is a form of persecution. We may not be being put to death, but uh, Christianity is being persecuted more and more in America. And how are we responding to that? And what are, how are we viewing that? Um, Uh, Ignatius does not want them to intervene. He wants them to let this thing go uh, because he, in his word, he wants to become a word of God. The next Roman ruler in the second century was that I have on here is Hadrian. Um, We don't have a lot of information about the occasion of the persecution under Hadrian. Uh, You'll remember Hadrian's wall in Britain um, really, at this point, you're seeing Rome, and it's, it's growing even all the way to Britain. I mean, it's, the, the Roman um, rule at this point is very extensive. Uh, what we do know about the nature of the persecution, we actually know from Justin Martyr and his apology. He mentions in his apology uh, Hadrian's rescript. And in Hadrian's rescript, Justin Martyr points out that Hadrian is basically calling for moderation when it comes to persecution. So, um, yeah, the nature of the persecution or Hadrian was, uh, was moderate, or by his rescript, it was a call for moderation. But we know that Christians had to be proven uh, guilty of illegal acts under Hadrian, it, so it couldn't just be someone uh, making an accusation. In fact, uh, the moderation really is in the next two points uh, under the nature. Secondly, slanderous accusations are forbidden. So now, not only are anonymous accusations paid no attention to, now slanderous accusations are forbidden and false witnesses are now punished. So, uh, that is the moderation under Hadrian. 
the outcomes. Um, really, the main outcome of persecution under Hadrian is that Polycarp was martyred. Polycarp, um, he, when he learned that he had been accused, he actually first went and hid. Um, Polycarp was, was younger than Ignatius. In fact, he went to meet Ignatius when Ignatius was traveling through Asia Minor. Um, and so he was well involved with what happened to Ignatius. When he learned about uh, his accusation, he hid for several days. Um, but he finally became convinced that it was God's will that he be arrested. And so he waited for the soldiers to come and get him. Um, the proconsul who presided over his trial uh, tried to persuade him to deny Christ and be released. Um, and he tried several different things, uh, but Polycarp refused. Uh, the judge then ordered him to cry out, listen, Polycarp, just cry out, away with the atheist. Again, uh, Christians were called atheists, and uh, so the, the, the judge basically said, just cry out, away with the atheists, and you can be released. Uh, seemed like an easy thing to do, uh, as they were about to... Uh, so, yeah, so the story goes, uh, so Polycarp looks around and points at all the people sitting and watching all the Romans, and says, away with the atheists. And so they take Polycarp, they're going to burn him at the stake. Um, uh, we actually have recorded the prayer that he prayed as, they, as he was being burned, or about to be burned at the stake. And uh, he prayed this, Lord Sovereign God, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment, so that jointly with your martyrs I may have a share in the cup of Christ. For this I bless and glorify you. Amen. Again, you get the attitude that the Christians looked at um, persecution and death, martyrdom. And notice that Polycarp at first went and hid. But then he became convinced. It, and, and there would be some debate about this, and we'll get into that uh, next week, um, about, or actually next week or the week after, I can't remember, um, but we're going to get into some of the division that was caused in the church because of the persecutions, uh, uh, but for, for Polycarp, um, it wasn't that he was hiding from martyrdom, um, he was sort of, I mean, remember, you remember Paul did this at first, you know, when he found out that Rome was after him, you know, he left, uh, and, and so uh, Polycarp would try to hide, but then he realized that this was the will of God, and so he just waited. Uh, third, under second century, is Marcus Aurelius. Um, and actually, this is the last one. Marcus Aurelius ruled from 161 to 180. There was another ruler at the end, uh, Septimius Severus, we're not going to look at him this week. We'll look at him next time. Or actually, not next time, but a few weeks ahead when I do the third century. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, uh, the occasion for his persecution, unlike Nero and Domitian, uh, he was not enamored with glory. He was not enamored with power. Uh, he considered himself to be uh, an enlightened ruler. Um, he... Uh, wrote meditations for his own use that are considered literary masterpieces, so a uh, very smart ruler. Um, 
and he, by all accounts, he possessed one of the most enlightened minds of his time. However, he was also, which is very common for back then, very superstitious. And so Rome had encountered a string of invasions, natural disasters, floods, things like this. And so Marcus Aurelius um, believed that the reason Rome was encountering so many um, natural disasters and invasions uh, was because of the Christians. <clears throat> well, not so directly. He believed that Rome had left uh, the Roman tradition, the Roman gods, and part of that was because of the Christians. And so now uh, Marcus Aurelius bans Christianity and required a return to the old Roman religion. Up until this point, Christianity uh, wasn't so much banned as long as they would participate in the other things. Um, what was really forbidden up until this point was not worshiping the emperor, not burning incense to the emperor or the gods and praying to the gods. But now, under Marcus Aurelius, uh, Christianity is uh, banned. The persecution, by all accounts, is severe and empire-wide. Um, the outcomes, uh, most notably Justin Martyr is martyred in 165 under Marcus Aurelius. Uh, Justin Martyr was probably one of the leading Christian scholars of the second century. Uh, he had started a school in Rome where he taught what he called the true philosophy. Justin Martyr would engage in debates in the city and was really a, a, a strong proponent for Christianity. Um, and, uh, and so as he was debating, he would often remember... Uh, a lot of Christianity, Christians being accused, had to do with outsiders uh, seeing Christians and accusing them of certain things. Uh, well, the story is uh, Justin had beat one of Rome's main philosophers at the time in a debate. And the story is that that philosopher accused him uh, of being a Christian. Um, and so Justin Martyr was put to death under Marcus Aurelius. <clears throat> um, next week, um, I want to... So it's a little bit interesting, and part of that is because of Gonzalez's book. Uh, so we're not going to do the third century persecutions until the end. Uh, and I, I, I think the reason he organizes his book that way is primarily because that is a, a great lead-in to Constantine. Uh, so we're going up until Constantine, um, and so you really get a flavor in the last, the third century of persecution, how Rome moves toward Constantine. Um, uh, so next week, uh, we'll take some time to look at the apologists and how they were responding to some of these things. So you'll notice I'm not moving necessarily chronologically through. Next week, I'm going to kind of go back and, and look at the apologist and, and more directly uh, the accusations against Christians and how they were responding to them. Uh, then we'll look at the teachers of the church, and then we'll come to the third century and persecution up until Constantine. Um, so let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you uh, for the testimony of faithful men who've gone before us. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would um, take heed to their lives, uh, to their words. Lord, that uh, they would encourage us and strengthen us um, as we face minor persecutions. 
Uh, Lord, I pray that you would um, glorify your church, build your church even this day. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are suffering persecution today. Lord, we ask that you would strengthen them and, and give them your grace. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, you would just, through their witness, as they walk through persecution and possible martyrdom, that your church would continue to grow. Bring people to a saving knowledge of yourself. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.